You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey there, everybody. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor for Kingsway Christian Church. And if you were visiting with us today, maybe it's your first or second time or so, we're so glad you're tuning in and giving us a chance to share God's word with you. So I don't know about you, but I am tired of being cooped up in the house. I do love my house. I'm a homebody, but I love to get out. I love to go places. I love to take my boys places. I love to just get out of the house and enjoy life and enjoy other people. In fact, I come into the office to write my sermons because I got to get out of the house once in a while. So one of the things that I do to fill the time is I'll be scrolling through social media, just looking for little ways to laugh, kind of laughing at the way the world is processing this whole quarantine thing. Here's two particular ones I saw over the last week that I thought I'd share with you. The first one comes from the 80s, 90s. You guys remember David Spade or Chris Farley? Some of you who are not old enough, you may not remember Black Sheep and uh, Tommy Boy. And David Spade shared it this within the last couple of weeks. He said, remember going to places that was awesome. If you were a part of the SNL kind of scene back then, you may get that, you may not. That's okay. This one will fit you much better, some of you, because this is my mom, my sister, my wife. If you're watching at home, I love you. But it says, you doing okay? No, I want to go to TJ Maxx. So I don't know about you, but here, this will set up a really good question for us today as we're wrestling with today's content. And the question is this, what will you do the moment you are free? Have you thought about that? Now, I get the feeling in the same way that we kind of slowly backed into the quarantine, we'll slowly come out of the quarantine. I don't think there's going to be some announcement. It's like, hey, tomorrow, everybody go crazy. I think it's going to be slowly letting, you know, these people go back to work or these people go back to school or whatever. We'll kind of, at some point, that's going to happen, whenever that moment happens. But have you thought about when it's your turn and you're finally let out, will you be like the dog who's been sitting in the kennel all day, who finally gets released? Or what what exactly are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What's going to happen? Are you going to run to your first baseball game, basketball game, sporting event possible? Are you you going to literally run to the, maybe go work out? Are you going to go shopping as quickly as you can? Uh, maybe somewhere other than Kroger or Aldi's or wherever? Uh, are you going to go see extended family, like outside of the people that you can't wait to get out of the house, get away from for a little bit? Like whatever that is, where do you plan on going? Here's the irony of freedom. Now I live in America. I was born in America. I've only visited some other countries on mission trips and Canada, if you want to call it that, on vacation as a foreign country. It feels like died America sometimes. But I don't know a lot about what everybody else goes through. But I know this about Americans. We love our freedom. We love our freedom. And we very much define our freedom as the ability to do what we want when we want. And that's part of why this is so hard for us. I think it's part of why the quarantine makes us feel hemmed in, controlled, like somebody else telling us what to do and how to do it. I, I suspect there are other countries who come in a more dictatorial um, leadership where there's a dictatorship and they're more used to people telling them what to do and how to do it. And maybe it's a little bit easier for them. I don't know. I just know for me and for many of my friends, this isn't true. And the reason that's the problem for us is because we like to be in control. And the reality is, that's a biblical problem that the Bible describes for us all the way back to the very beginning in the garden for Adam and Eve and their first sin. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to make their own rules, their own way for life, and what we find consequently then is what happened is they stopped experiencing freedom as a result of taking control away 
from God. And this is going to take us where we want to go today. As I said last week, I made this phrase that Easter means that Jesus takes my worst and gives me his best. And I talked about the doctrine of imputation, that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he not only took my sin, he took the curse and the penalty for my sin on himself. When he rose from the dead on Easter morning, then what he gave me was his life. So when I place my faith and my trust in Jesus, I now get what I don't deserve. That is what the Bible calls grace, that I get what I don't deserve. Now, here's what's really fascinating, is when Jesus did that, when he took on himself my worst, gave me his best, what really happened was I found real freedom. And what I found with it is freedom didn't mean what I thought that it meant. This past week, I went to psychology today, and I I just love psychology. I don't know about any of you out there. Some of you may hate it. I love psychology. I love to read it. I love to study it. I love to see what's going on there. But I went and read a blog by a gentleman named Shaharam Heshmat. He's a PhD, and if I butchered his name, my apologies to you, sir. Uh, But I looked up this concept of identity. And what he had to say about identity, I found fascinating. He says, identity is answering the question, who are you? What does it mean to be who you are? Identity relates to our basic value that dictate the choices that we make. These choices reflect who you are and what we value. For example, he says, we can assume that the investment banker values money, while the college professor values education and helping students. However, few people choose their identities. Instead, they simply internalize the values of their parents or the dominant cultures. Now, what I find is the more that I study the sciences of all sorts, that whenever science steps upon a truth, they often find a theologian standing at the top of the mountain saying, well, we've been saying that all this time. Because what we find is when we locate a truth, that truth reveals something about God or the way God made the world. And so when the world discovers it, we go, well, look, we shouldn't be surprised that God has revealed that all along, even if we didn't see it originally, that we finally stumbled upon it. Now, as this uh, PhD, Mr. Hashmat, has said, is he correct? See, the way that he and the way that our world defines identity today is the ultimate form of freedom. In other words, when a person today has their internal values aligning with their external actions, we will experience the greatest amounts of freedom. We will finally be free to be who we really are. This battle's been raging in America and parents who are sitting at home with their children, I will be hypersensitive in what I say. But this battle has been raging in the public sphere, on TV, in politics, and in in your schools, and in your workplaces, and in all over the place. Because the whole idea here is religion, and especially certain religions in the world, Christianity being one of them, you're restricting who a person is is allowed to be by saying these things are right and these things are wrong. Nobody has the right to impose on me their set of rules and their set of values. And when you do that, you're actually hurting and offending my identity. Now, let's test that against scripture. Because part of what's eating at you and part of what's eating at me right now is that I'm not free to do what I want. Did you know the Bible actually talks about that? 
The Bible actually discusses this specifically in John chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The free from what? And freed to what? What exactly does it mean to be free? And specifically, freed by Jesus. To really understand the issue as the way the Bible lays it out, we've got to dig into a number of texts and really unpack it. And by the way, we're gonna do that over these next few weeks because it's my um, personal journey and it's my experience as a pastor. And as I read books and read news articles and read social media, as I dig into these things, what I see and what I hear and what I've experienced and what I learned is that you're wanting freedom. You're wanting something that you don't currently have. And if you believe that the only way to get it is for everybody to get out of your way and let you do what you want to do whenever you want to do it, the truth is you will never truly be free. Now, we all know that instinctively, right? I mean, if you were, say, an immigrant who moved into our country and you believe that now you're an American, you are free and you can do what you want when you want, and one day your neighbor cuts into your yard and, and makes your yard look terrible and you get angry and you go over and you pop that neighbor in the nose. What you're gonna find out quickly is your freedom ends where his nose begins, that those things intersect each other. And then everybody goes, no, wait a minute. I thought I was free. Well, you are free as long as your freedoms don't impose upon me. But Jesus says, I have come to set all men free. I've come to set all women free. I have come to bring freedom. And if you trust in me, you will be free indeed. But free from what? And freed to what? I remember one of my Old Testament professors, a guy by the name of Dan Dyke. And uh, Mr. Dyke, I remember in class, he, we were doing, he was handing out word studies where you pick a word in Hebrew and you had to go study it. And the way you study it is you go look first, like what's a dictionary say that means? And you had this list of like, I can't remember, it was like 15 questions you had to ask. Then you had to go look up every single use of that word throughout the Old Testament, and you had to narrow it down. You had to pick whatever, 12 or 15 of those uses of that word. You had to read those verses. You had to read them in context. You had to write out what they meant, what each of those means. Then you had to compile why you believe that right definition of that word is X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. Whether you agree with the dictionary definition or not, you had to basically look at that word in its context and understand what it means. When we're reading an ancient document like the New Testament or the Old Testament, you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years old, depending on which part we're talking about, in order to truly understand what a word means you can't just look up the dictionary definition you have to look at the context what the author is saying and the ways that that word is used over and over and over again well Paul talks about this very idea of freedom first he talks about it then he talks around it then he comes back to talking about it again and what Paul shares with us is something that we can all understand and we can all relate to and that is this while we all desperately want to be free we aren't look at Romans chapter 7 with me here Paul says we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Now that's kind of a confusing sentence, but it's not that hard to get, right? I mean, we all kind of understand it. Last week, I talked about Sigmund Freud. He said that he would find the best of the best of society, and he would get them in a private room, put them on his couch. He was kind of the, the 
the first real psychologist, you might say, who really became famous and started writing all these books. But even the best of the best of society, when he got them alone and they started to talk, he said, he used this analogy, it was like there were all these things going down deep underneath. And it would be like going out to the local river and, and finding a rock there and you pick it up and you turn over the rock and all that's on the other side of that rock is mold and mud and centipedes and, and just stuff going on under the surface. But what most of us do is they flip the rock back over and you walk by and you go, oh, look at this beautiful river. Look at this beautiful person. Look at this beautiful life. Paul says, I can relate with that. Because the thing that I, I want to do, I don't do it. And what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And you're like, Paul, what are you talking about? All this law talk. Well, Paul is trying to get to this very understanding of the fact that all of us, whether we like it or not, are slaves. Now, slavery, in Paul's analogy, has to do with a binding. Imagine cuffs being chained to something. Well, what is it that I'm actually chained to? Paul's point is I am chained to sin. I am bound up in it. Sin, as I told you last week, is the hamartia. The fact that I missed the mark. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. And what he's starting to build on, if you go read all of Romans 6 and 7 and 8, you get more of this. But what he's building on is, so God told us the right ways to do things. That's the law. God told us what was right and wrong, and the law is spiritual. The law is good. The problem is, as soon as God told me what was right and wrong, I became not any less chained to my sin. Now I became stuck because as soon as the law showed me what was wrong, I wanted it more. You ever feel that way? Oh, come on. For those of you who are sitting with your children right now, have you ever noticed this in your own children? You ever find your kid in the other room eating a piece of candy, hiding under the table? You ever tell your kid not to do something only to go upstairs and come back down and it's the very thing that they're doing? Do you remember being a kid and your parents told you, don't watch certain things, don't listen to certain things, don't do certain things, and then as soon as they said don't, you would find somebody else, some kid, some friend, somebody else doing it, you go, but their mom lets them do it, and then you as a parent would always say what? Well, if Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you jump off with them? But the point, Paul's point is the same that you know, your parents knew. And someday, if you grow up and become a parent, you'll see it in your own children because it's true about you and it's true about me. Tell me what I can't do. Tell me what I'm not allowed to do. And it's the very thing that I will immediately want to do. And Paul says, the law was good. The law was spiritual. The problem wasn't the law. The problem is in here. I've got this sin problem. And the law, not only did it reveal to me the ways that I'm bound up in sin, doing what I don't even really want to do, the law then condemned me because it revealed just how far from God I really was. Paul goes on, he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, this is important. Because some of you sitting at home, 
you still believe freedom is found in doing what you want, when you want, how you want. That nobody should be allowed to tell you what to do. Have you ever thought about the fact that virtually every relationship of this world is all about power, control, who's in charge and who isn't? Who's the leader? Who's the follower? Who's the boss? Who's the employee? Who's the owner? Who's the worker? Who's in charge here? Virtually every relationship in the world comes down to that. Paul's saying, I can relate. But when I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, it's not because I'm a really good person who messes up sometimes. It's because in me, there is sin. And sin wants to be in control. Sin wants to be the owner. Sin wants to rule and to reign. So he says, as long as I'm a slave to sin, I can't do what I want to do. But he says next, for I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do want to do, this I keep on doing. And then you get to verse 24 and Paul finally lets it out, this exasperation. You can hear it in his voice. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You hear it? I mean, Paul is just trying to say, look, I'm Paul, but I'm bound up when sin is in me. I'm bound up in sin so that sin tells me where to go how to go, what to do, and how to respond. Now, if you're still sitting at home, you're like, yeah, all this talk about sin and slavery and binding and all that stuff, like, whatever, it's just too spiritual. I don't get it all. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Okay, well, let's just think about it for a minute. Have you ever had a fight? Let's just, for those of you who are married, I'll use a marriage illustration, because like, I can relate, I'm married. And have you ever had a fight with your spouse and you've noticed, because you've been married for a little while now, that when you say certain things and when you act certain ways, they touch on certain trigger points with your spouse. They create in them anxiety and anger and, and, and whatever it is. And, and all of a sudden, there's a battle for control in the relationship. Have you noticed that? And if you have noticed that, praise God for revealing that to you. And have you noticed yet after a short span of time, you may stop doing it because you think to yourself, this isn't helping, this isn't going anywhere. And then you get further down the road in the relationship and they're irritating you, you're tired, you've had a bad day, you're feeling emotional, whatever the situation may be, and they do a thing, remember the thing they do that drives you nuts, and all of a sudden you're like, fine, forget it, all bets are off, I'm gonna do it anyway. And you go back and you say the thing, you do the thing that drives them absolutely bonkers. Do you know that? That's sin. And the reason I'm using the illustration is because no matter how many times you ever have that little voice, like remember the Bugs Bunny cartoons when you were a kid and you got like a devil sitting on one shoulder and an angel sitting on the other and you got the one voice going, don't say it. The other one going, the other one going, yeah, 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 say it, say it, say it, it'll be great. Like, don't say it. No, 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 say, say, say it, it'll be great. And then you finally let out and you say it and then the big fight erupts and next thing you know, I can't stand this person. I never know why I married, why did I marry this person? Hey, what's wrong with this crazy person? You start having all these thoughts in your head and then when you finally calm down and the spirit starts to speak to you again and the Holy Spirit leads you and says, you know, if you hadn't said da 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 well, it's not my fault, it's their fault. If they hadn't, you're bound up in chains because though you shouldn't have done it, though you shouldn't have said it, though you should have bit your tongue, 
You should have been patient and kind and loving and merciful. All those things that we read in 1 Corinthians 13 and we committed to our spouse on the day we got married and yet I let it out. Why? Because there's still sin living in me. So what does Jesus mean when he says, John 8, 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He actually uses the same word in there, free and free, twice, but he uses a different um, ending to the word, which gives a nuance. The first time he uses the word free, it's the word, let me see if I can pronounce this, Eliu Thereo, Eliu Thereo. And it literally means to be released from bondage. So Jesus says, if the son sets you free, what he says is, when you have Jesus, you'll have the freedom to not be bound up in sin anymore. Now you may, may be thinking to yourself, but pastor, you just read to us from Paul and Romans chapter seven, who said, what's wrong with me? The thing I wanna do, I don't do. And the thing I don't wanna do, I do. What's wrong with me? So if Paul could say that, how can you say that Jesus sets us free? It's because if you keep reading Romans, by the way, you will understand Romans so much better. If you never stop reading, just keep going because each chapter builds and comments on something he said previously. He gets to Romans chapter eight, verse one, and he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're like, well, how does that help? It's everything. It's the game changer that you're looking for. Because what he's saying is, though sin still is present in me, I stand righteous before God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there is now no condemnation. I mean, it's the voices of your past. The stuff hidden under the rock of your worst day. It's nothing before him. Remember, Imputation, which we talked about on Easter Sunday, means Jesus took your worst so he could give you his best. It is a change in identity. What is it that you are saved from? You're saved from sin. You're saved from the curses of sin. You're saved from identifying yourself as whatever is under the rock. Now, there is a huge difference biblically, and I will go into this throughout the series. We won't have time today, so keep coming back. But there's a big difference between punishment and consequences. The reality, the sad reality, is some of our rock, under the rock decisions do have consequences in our relationships but it's not consequences coming from God punishing you. The punishment has been removed. And now the grace to walk you through relationships exists. The power of God is now in you. I love, love, love the way Timothy Keller says this. He says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself 
nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. See, what Timothy is getting at, and I just love the way he says it. See, if I am desperately believing that my freedom is found in doing what I want when I want, I will quickly find my freedom creates bondage for other people. We're gonna talk about that throughout the series. See, when I get to do what I wanna do and that is not surrender to God, it's just whatever my flesh and my pleasures want, it will create bondages of hurt and pain and wounds in other people and they will be bound up in your poor choices. Some of you know this all too well. You have felt it in your life all too well. But when I come to Jesus, he sets me free from the chains that are binding me so that I can now be free to live. It's the power of the gospel. In, in John 8, 36, when Jesus says, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That second time he uses the word free. Again, it's the same word with a nuance at the end. And it's, again, if I could pronounce this right, he says, it's the word eleutheros. So it's a little different than therao. Slightly different. But this one means unshackled to realize one's destiny in Christ. Now that'll preach. Jesus comes to set you free from the shackles so that when he takes the shackles off, you can come alive in him. You can truly begin to live for him. And ironically, that's freedom. The Bible describes freedom through the lens of obedience. That you will never feel more joy, more happiness, more satisfaction, more freedom than when you become a slave to God. Because what you will discover, and I'm just gonna give you a hint of where we're going throughout the series, what you'll discover is God is far more good than you ever realized. He gives you all things for your enjoyment so that he could give your life meaning and purpose. Jesus tells a story that illustrates this well. We see it in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, there's a man and he has two sons. And the younger son comes to him one day and he demands his inheritance. Now, without going too deep into the story, I've done entire sermons on this one story. In order to receive your inheritance, the dad, the has to die. But the son comes to his dad and basically in the Greek, he actually demands his father's life. His father gives him his inheritance. Obviously he doesn't die, but he gives him his inheritance. And the son wanders off into what's called the far country. And after spending all of his money on wild living, whatever exactly that means, he runs out of funds and he finds himself desperate. And he's working one day at a pig farm. And again, there's all these connections between the, the Hebrew kosher diet and they would never eat pork and the fact that he's now working at a pig farm. And they're trying to show you his absolute desperation. He is so hungry and so desperate for, for life again that he literally says to himself, I'm crazy. He wants to eat the very pods the pigs are eating. I would eat the slop if I could. And then he gets an idea. And it says in Luke chapter 15, Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. They threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of the grace of God. When the son came to his senses and realized, I'm bound up in poor choices, bad decisions, and an identity that isn't getting me where I thought it would. He comes home. A Hebrew man would never be found running because the only way he could run, he would have to hike up his toga, whatever kind of outfit, exposing his lower legs. It would have been considered a child's act and no distinguished man in that culture would have done that. But this father had compassion. The Greek word for compassion is splagonizomai. And it literally means he felt something deep in his body. He saw his son way off in the distance and he couldn't wait to free him from his chains. And he runs to him and he kisses him and he begins to pour his love over him and dote over him and let the son know he's so glad that he's home. And the son has his speech rehearsed. Remember what he's going to say. I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm not, I'm not, not, I'm not good enough. If you, will just, if you will just let me be one of your servants. But notice what happens when he gets to that part. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Something is missing here. Do you see it? Maybe you didn't see it. Remember, in his rehearsed speech, he would say, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I know that. Just make me one of your servants. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to pay off the debt that I've accrued to you. But the moment that the father grabbed him, the moment that he saw the father running, the moment that the father began to pour out his love through his kisses, no Hebrew man would have done dare these things. On his best day, the son deserved punishment. He deserved to have the father ridicule him and let everybody else know this is not okay, but he didn't receive what he deserved. He received the love of the father. And it's at this moment that the son repents and realizes I've been chasing the wrong things and all the wrong things ever did was leave me empty and desperate inside. But here in my father's arms, I'm whole again. And the father says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let's kill it. Let's, let's have a feast. We're gonna celebrate. The son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. I'll talk about this more throughout the series, but I realize some of you don't have this kind of relationship with an earthly dad. And you hear this kind of story and you think to yourself, oh, what I would give to have that kind of love poured out over me. Listen, I am so sorry that that wasn't your experience. God placed a dad in your life 
to point you to your heavenly father. And in any way that your dad didn't measure up to your heavenly father, I'm sorry. But later in this series, we'll also talk about how to deal with that more, what to do with that. For now, let's just rest in the fact that your father loves you. Your father cares for you. Your identity is not what is hidden under this rock. Your identity is not what is ever in your past. Your identity is not whatever your mom or your dad or your coach or your boss or your ex or your child or whoever it is has said about you. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. I've been reading a book while on the quarantine by a guy named Mark Batterson. It's called Double Blessing. And Mark has this great story he tells. He says this, when I was in seminary, I spoke to a gathering of men at a drug rehabilitation program. I met a man who had made some mistakes that contributed to his action, addiction. Sorry, He had gotten out from under the umbrella of blessing and he paid the price in rehab. But I felt tremendous empathy for him when he shared his backstory. He told me what his dad told him every time he made a mistake as a child. He said, what the hell, you stupid? I ask for grace for all the parents at home. Children, we don't talk like that. We don't talk like that in my house. But that's what this man's dad said to him. Imagine those words ringing in your ears. It was obvious by the tears in his eyes how deeply those words cut into his soul. They echoed loud and long. I'm not blaming the father, he said, for this man's mistakes. But they were more than careless words. They were a curse that left an open wound. Is it any wonder his son made some stupid decisions? He was simply living up to or down to his father's words. But here's my proposal to you today. What if your heavenly father's words over you were not, what's wrong with you, you stupid? What if your heavenly father's words were, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus rose from the dead, everything that was true about him became true for you. So when God looked at him and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, he now looks at you if you were in Christ Jesus and he says the same thing. If I could summarize all of this, I think I would take you back to John chapter eight. And I would summarize it like this. Let me give you the context of the verse we've been using throughout this. In John 8, 34 to 36, it says, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Do you hear that? As long as you are living under your own leadership and authority and desires and flesh and sin, doing what you want when you want, you'll be a slave. But if you come to Jesus, he will take your slavery and he'll turn it into sonship and daughtership. He'll turn it into family. So now you'll always have a place with God. So, Jesus has come to set you free from sin and its curse of death. That's 
what he came to set you free from. What did he set you free to? Jesus has come to set you free to have a new identity in him. And I'll close with this. As Jesus says in Revelation chapter two, verse 17, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And I realize Revelation is full of all kinds of images and and pictures and things we need to interpret. But for our purposes today, what Jesus is basically saying is, I'm no longer taking the black stone with the stuff on it that's been hiding down by the river, all the stuff underneath. This is no longer your identity. From now on, when you know me, I'll give you a new stone. And there's gonna be a name written on it. It's only gonna be known by you. And what that tells us is that Jesus intends to know you so personally, so deeply, so intimately that he will literally give you a new name and new identity and it'll just be something special between the two of you. In a moment, I'm gonna pray to close. Listen, I don't want this moment to go by without an opportunity for you. Over the last week, we had nine people Surrender to Jesus Christ and become united with him at baptism. Maybe that's your story. I don't know. Maybe there's something in your past you need help unpacking and working through. Maybe there's a wound or a trauma, something that's occurred, and you're just now hearing that Jesus wants to set you free. I wanna invite you into that relationship with him. You could begin that right now with this prayer. I'm gonna pray. If you're ready to receive Jesus Christ, I just want you to pray with me. And when we're done praying, I just want you to text That number we tell you about all the time, 317-565-4911. Text the word connect and we will take it from there and walk you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the white stone and the new name that you give us. I thank you for intimately and personally knowing each of us so that, God, you know exactly what our triggers are, our hurts, our pains, our wounds, our fears. You know it all. You know it all. And you love us anyway. And God, I just want to pray right now for every single man and woman, child out there, who's never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. May your spirit go before us. May you move and stir in their hearts. And if they are ready right now to receive you, I just pray, God, that they would accept your grace and your mercy over their lives. God, I pray that they would take the next step and reach out, that we could talk to them about what it means to have a relationship with you. God, we thank you. For all of us who are saved, we thank you, God, for giving us a new name and a new identity. Thank you for loving us and wrapping your arms around us and adoring us, even when we didn't deserve it. You're a good father. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.